Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon once more. Hopefully you had a good conversation at your table. Uh, how was lunch? If you appreciated it, can we hear it for the few folks at uh, Country Kitchen? Thank you very much. Uh, next week's topic is um, one that is actually very near and dear to me. Uh, exposing the developing brain to marijuana. What are the risks? I think the risks are you end up on city council. The um, <laughs> guest speaker is Dr. Dow Ed, uh, Diana Dow Edwards, uh, professor of uh, physiology and pharmacology from Downstate Medical Center, Brooklyn, New York. So she's coming a long way to have a conversation about this. A reminder as well, of course, that this and every session is on the uh, website, the SACPAW website. Um, we need to uh, uh, share that with our friends and family as well. So if you see or hear of a topic that you feel is significant, please feel free to pass that around. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank uh, Shaw Television, CKXU FM Radio 83. Uh, I believe we had CTV and Global here as well doing interviews. Uh, Lethbridge Herald, of course, uh, the good folks here at Country Kitchen Catering, and the University of Lethbridge for their ongoing support of this program. Uh, I'm going to take a moment as well, and I know she's going to be upset with this, but I'd like to thank Annalise for the work that she does too. <laughs> Being a moderator is easy because you show up and everything is actually laid out for you, and it's incumbent upon me to make me look good, but she certainly makes everybody look good from a starting point. So thank you for your work that you do here as well. So at this time, we are going to call um, Lee... Uh, Sorry, Aaron, sorry, Aaron and Dylan back up here, and we're going to have questions. There is a microphone over here, and if you note, it is called questions, so if we can limit it to questions, that would be wonderful. I've been told good luck with that, but we'll see what we can do today. My name is Frances Schultz, and I find your presentation really shocking because of the age category that I fall into. It makes, for a lot of us here, I think it's an experience that is absolutely foreign to us. And when you say 73% of women are harassed, um, that means to me that for a lot of us that it doesn't happen to it, does that mean that every young woman experiences this? Yeah, that number is from the UN and it probably refers to women who are somehow engaged in online contexts. But yeah, I think one of the things that we talk about is, um, I don't know if it's come up in Lethbridge at all, but the idea of a rape culture 
which is another way of talking about misogyny or the patriarchy. And really, there are many different ways and, and small ways that people can experience violence. So we talk about it in terms of microaggressions. It's not necessarily that everybody that's in an online context is experiencing rape threats or death threats. But they may be told, you're a liar for saying what you say about your experience online or so it may not feel as violent but it's this sort of constant onslaught of experience of being undermined about your experience of violence or undermined just because you're a woman or from a marginalized gender in this space so I do think it is a predominant experience and it's very normalized right like if you're you know how long has street harassment been around that might be something that that folks in the room can identify more with catcalling. So if you're walking down the street and somebody whistles at you, maybe you don't really think about it much and you just brush it aside, but that is an experience of being objectified and that is that is street harassment and I think if you always thought about every experience you have in a in a lens of understanding it through violence against women and gender-based violence, it could be very hard to live, right? So I think we all have strategies of coping with this constant microaggression and the environment that we live in that minimize, like we may minimize ourselves what's happening to us. So I think that's also part of it is making visible the constant onslaught and also the coping strategies for that way of being. My name is Tan Mitsui. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, Aaron, you mentioned in your presentation the role of business. Uh, I'm sure you all agree with me that uh, violence is a good profit for business. And uh, I wondered if, and, and also usually a lot of politicians are bought by business they are very reluctant to go against the wishes of business. So uh, it is easy to propose a legisl legislation against violent content in social media, just like pornography. It's good money. Like pornography, violence is good money. Could you tell me how much influence the business is, has, in terms of effort to prevent violence on online or pornography? I, I know that the pornography is almost unstoppable because it, it's good money. So I'll start to answer and also ask Dylan to, to speak to that as well. I think one of the ideas of the project is really how can we hold different businesses to account. I think one of the issues is that the way businesses are run is so separate from uh, a rationale that relates to social justice. Right? You've got something set up for enti entirely different purposes. I do think some businesses recognize the impact of violence um, in some ways, 
like the the obvious cyber violence examples that we've talked about today you know it's our understanding that facebook does think something needs to be done but that it's so big and it's so out of their area of expertise that they don't quite know how to manage it um and to me that's really interesting we've heard that sort of through the grapevine but have we ever heard facebook say publicly we're struggling with this we want the community's help. We want our users' input on this. So I do think there's a lot of room, even if businesses are struggling, for them to step up and do more, even if it's just to be honest about where they're, where they're at with this issue. I don't think anybody can pretend to understand all of the consequences and all of the ways that the Internet and social media are being used by different people. Um, so that's a few thoughts. Dylan, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, looking at the business angle or the political economy or thinking about, you know, how does money play into cyber violence is a huge, is a huge uh, undertaking, but it's also very important. I think, like, for example, when we were speaking at lunch at our table, I was talking about, you know, the, the tech sector itself doesn't have a lot of women who are working in it. They're not one, the ones who are developing these platforms. They don't, they don't have women in mind. So, for example, there's an application called Tinder, and it's actually an online dating application. So you can create a profile, you can go on it, and you can meet people to date, to, to meet, have relationships, whatever. Um, the CEO of Tinder, was, who's a woman, she, she decided to leave Tinder and create her own platform because she recognized that on Tinder there's a lot of harassment, and she wanted to create something with women in mind. So she created this whole new application called Bumble. It's also an online application, but she, she wanted it from a women's perspective. So, for example, on the platform, you can um, only women can initiate conversations. So women don't necessarily have to feel unsafe when men are constantly messaging them and asking them inappropriate questions or harassing them. They get to decide, you know, what level of participation in a conversation do they want to have. They have a bit more control over that. So I think that's kind of a neat way to kind of think about it is also, like, how do we get more women in the technology center uh, sector? How do we get these platforms to have women in mind or have different audiences in mind? Young people, they don't consult them. So I think that's super important. Um, another thing, too, is... <clears throat> we need to kind of start thinking about a bit more about the ways that our own personal information and our activities online are being used by these companies as marketing and uh, strategies as well as um, yeah, as market, basically just marketing ploys. Um, for example, I don't know if you folks are on the internet, but one thing that I noticed that if I'm on Facebook and I'm on Google, so for example, if I'm on Google and I want to go shopping, so I Google you know, the you know, I want these particular kinds of boots. That's fine. So then later I go and I open Facebook in another, in a kind of another window and I start typing in Facebook. All of a sudden, what I was Googling, the boots, show up as an advertisement on Facebook. So that's kind of very interesting. So I'm kind of like, okay, so how does Facebook know that I was looking for those boots? It's all in the algorithms and the way that the, the Google and the Facebook, how they're linked, how they're coded, um, in ways that collect our information and, and use it to make money off of us. So I think that's kind of another thing that we need to start recognizing. Um, Facebook recently, um, they decided to split their, their platform into two different platforms. So you have the Facebook application and then you have the messaging application. And I was like, okay, I don't really know why Facebook is creating a whole new application just for messaging. So I was like, that's kind of interesting. I didn't download it on my phone, but a lot of my friends did. Um, it makes it really hard for me to kind of check my messages on Facebook. I have to go and log in through the browser, and it's very complicated. Um, 
and a couple of the articles that I was reading around it was, was very interesting. They were saying, you know, Facebook now has access to the functions on your phone. I was like, well, like, what does that actually mean? So I had some friends who downloaded the Messenger, and they were at karaoke. This is kind of an interesting story, but they went to karaoke, and they decided to go with their friends, and they were singing, and they weren't on their phones or anything. The next day, they were in Googling, so the same person goes into their Google, starts typing in the Google search, and Google autofilled the song that they sang at karaoke. So they were like, how did Google know what songs I was singing at karaoke if I didn't even ever search for it, if I didn't even engage with my phone at all? The messenger has access to the microphones in your phone. They're constantly listening to conversations if you don't know that that is happening and you're not um, finding ways to kind of deactivate that. So they use the conversations that you're having as a way to market and, and kind of advertise to you. So it's kind of really, it's kind of scary stuff. Um, you know, and it's not with your consent. And a lot of young people are really concerned with, with that. Um, you too, although the young, the young kids don't know who you two are very much anymore, um, they decided to uh, go into everybody's Apple iPhones and to drop a new uh, music album into your phone for free. That's great, you two, thank you. But a lot of people were really upset because they were like, how did you two have access to my phone to be able to do that? So I think we need to start thinking about the ways that these companies use our information, use what we're searching for, our Facebook profiles. They take our photos. They put them in advertisements. Uh, Ritea Parsons actually was a really great example. They took a f- uh, one of her photos um, post after she had completed suicide and, she, and, and the tragedy happened. Um, there's a photos of her in an advertisement online. So they just took pictures, just randomly took her pictures and started putting them in advertisements and you don't, you don't have any control over that. If you're logging onto Facebook, they technically own all of the media that you share on there. So you know we need to be thinking about the ways that these companies are using our information and also selling them back to us. It's really problematic. Sorry, that was a huge rant. But I think it's, it's definitely something you should know about. Yeah. My name's Mary Shillington. That, that's really scary information you're giving. Uh, uh, I'm one of these uh, old yeah. grandmas who is not on Facebook intentionally for some of those reasons. Uh, uh, but I was curious, you have talked about young women, uh, and, and I use that terminology too. How, but I guess I'm curious about the age range uh, of what you classify as young women. We would not have known it at our table, except Bobby knew that there has been a rule that you have to be 13, technically, uh, before you can get a Facebook uh, 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 page or whatever. Uh, but, uh, of course, you can lie about your age. Uh, so what are you talking about for age, and what are the issues when they are actually children, uh, young children? I think we're using a pretty broad age range when we say young women to mean teens and young adults. But you're right. If A lot of these issues, when we're talking about it, it could be talking about children, so under 18. And in the context of abuse, uh, if we're talking under 16, there are real significant impl- impl- implications um, for child abuse. So it's an important question because I think there are different levels of um, emotional development and maturity at, at stake in this context. Uh, but I think I would return to what, what Dylan said, which is for parents or grandparents, it's really what we've, what we've seen in the, in the research and literature is that it's really important, 
you know, any good parent to have guidelines for their kids, to have guidelines for your grandkids. And so if you've got your grandkids over or you interact with them using different social media apps or technology, to be mindful of what rules they may have in place and for their and for there to be rules. So it's good to have rules. What will make safer online engagement? That's really important. But to communicate it in such a way, if they break the rules, that you're still there for them. So that if they do end up experiencing something, that they can go to you for help. So, you know, compassionate and strict, I think, is a good approach for a grandparent or parent. That's actually, it's a great question, but outside the, the scope of age, we have to remember that our premier has recently been attacked via Twitter uh, with some very graphic, very violent, very offensive language as well. Uh, so it's not necessarily just young people. We have to always be educating our youth, but this is something that is, is happening to women of, of all age. Next question. Uh, my name is Van Christou, and I'd like to thank both you, Aaron, and Dylan for a, a fascinating presentation, particularly to an, uh, an aging group like ours, which uh, with uh, during such uh, times where things are moving so quickly, uh, we can get out of tune with what's going on very quickly. And uh, uh, for example, Mary mentioned that uh, she doesn't trust Facebook, nor do I. Uh, I, I just refuse to have anything to do with it anymore. I signed in on it, but that's the end of it. Uh, I, I, I get all kinds of messages every day, but I, I just don't respond to it anymore for those very reasons. But my, uh, my point is regarding this matter of violence. Um, I'm old enough now where I've seen a lot of change in my lifetime. And one of the ch ch observations that I've made is the tremendous increase and the number of violent games that kids play on, the, on, on these uh, devices that they have. Um, how can you possibly grow up shooting down planes and blowing up buildings and killing people uh, in your imagination on these, on, on these uh, games they have, electronic games they have, without developing misogyny and without developing uh, violence in your mind? Um, do you see a connection between this, and I, I mentioned games, but it's also our movies. I refuse to go to most of the movies today because there's just too much violence in them for me. I think there's been a tremendous increase, and that seems to be the popular thing, and young people like it. It makes money, and that's what they're producing. Um, do you see a connection? This is my question. Do you see a connection between that kind of presentation uh, on, in toys, children's toys, all the way up to adult movies, and misogyny and, and violence that, that we're seeing increasing in our society? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, um, one thing that, one of the strategies to help prevent cyber violence is actually teaching young people, and actually anyone, uh, better digital media literacy. So being able to um, critically analyze all of the bombardment of advertising, video games, movies, uh, magazines, anything that, that we're constantly consuming. We live in a consumer culture. Young women are constantly bombarded with all these different types of messages. You know, you need to 
buy this particular type of makeup so that you can look good. You need to weigh this much. You need to, you know, and young women are starving themselves. They're trying to attain this um, false kind of myth of like what beauty means. So I think in terms of being online or being in video games, I actually had a really interesting conversation at an EB game store the other day, but uh, just making sure that young people have the, the capacity and anyone to be able to critically analyze what we're, what we're being fed, right? So, you know, there's um, some young women in the States, they decided to <laughs> take a Cosmo and they would follow each day the beauty steps that Cosmo said that you, you had to do for, to achieve a certain kind of beauty, right? So they decided to follow all these different tips and it went completely wrong. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why is Cosmo telling us to do this? Um, you know, mannequins in stores are very thin. Like, what kind of messages are we sending young people? Um, for the video games, you know, a lot of people will say like, you know, it's not the video games themselves that are perpetrating violence. It's the way that um, the folks are kind of behaving in response to it. So, um, there are some really awful video games out there. And the thing is, is like I have a 12-year-old stepson, and um, there's this video game called Grand Theft Auto, which has been around since like the 90s. And I, I played it when I was younger. And, and the more it kind of develops and the more graphics and the more technology, like the more it advances technologically, the more graphic I have seen it becoming. So I was in the store the other day, and um, you know we were talking about Grand Theft Auto Five, and we were saying how like he wants to get it for Christmas, and then the person who was working there was like, oh my god, like you should not do that. And I was like, oh, like I know kind of what's in it. And he's like, no, like you have no idea. The new one that they're coming out with, like the amount of things in this game is like incredibly disturbing. And we were kind of like, okay. And it's kind of a weird place to be because, you know, I know some of his friends are going to have it at their houses. We know that they're going to be playing it. They're, they're going to find a way to get an access to the video game because there's a certain level of status that comes with playing that video game. So how can we have conversations with our kids and with young people, with, with anyone, that they can kind of be critical and, and build in that kind of critical uh, capacity to, to deal with these kind of messages that they're receiving? I don't want to go into exactly, like, what the game has because it's going to really disturb you, but... Um, but I think, no, it's actually, like, really horrible. Um, but I think it's very important that we make sure that, you know, that media literacy piece is super, um, is definitely kind of happening in our schools and at home and, and all those pieces. Whether it's, you know, looking at a magazine and, you know, relating the amount of disordered eating in young women that's happening. Um, the beauty kind of stereotypes that kind of exist, video games, um, violence in, in movies, all that kind of stuff. I think if we teach people to be, to analyze it in a critical way, I think that's definitely more useful than saying like, you can't watch those because ultimately like we know they're gonna access those things anyway and we're also bombarded with those anywhere we go. You go to the mall, you cannot escape a thin woman who's very hypersexualized, right? So I think it's just giving people that capacity to be able to, to, to deal with that content. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Always rambling. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have so much to talk about. <laughs> no, I'm really enjoying this. It's great. Um, my name's Karen Tui, and I uh, kind of had two questions. You mentioned about uh, Google in the UK will take, will remove. Um, is there any kind of lobbying group that's in Canada that's pressing this forward? That's one. And the second one was, what else can we do to help this um, situation that we're our kids are in and that kind of thing. I will speak from a place of not 100% knowledge. So I don't know about any lobbying that's happening about the right to 
forget, but it's a really cool idea. If there was, I would guess it would be the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, which is a national organization based in Winnipeg. They have a really great website called needhelpnow.ca. So that's a useful resource for everybody to know about. It has very specific tips. If somebody has been bullied or harassed and say, for example, there's an intimate image of them online or other things, there's very concrete tips and a call line um, to help navigate different platforms, processes for removing that. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that that we see is, um, or rather the context that we work in, there's not a lot of uh, national voices working on violence against women. So there's a bit of a vacuum. So in terms of the lobbying piece on that, I'm not sure. Uh, YWCA maybe look, looking at that because they're also doing a project on cyber violence. But I don't think there's there's anything like that. But in terms of what can you do, I think the need help now is really important. I think um, listening non-judgmentally to your kids and grandkids and really supporting them and, and just letting them know, like, I know a lot of things happen um, and I hope that if you ever experience trouble, I can be here for you is really important. And I think the other thing is, you know, we've done a lot of fear-mongering here today. <laughs> and I think... Social media is not just a tool for negative things. There's a lot of really cool activism that happens. Can you support the young people in your life to explore feminist media production, to do the critical analysis, um, to leverage resources, to do education, to create a community online that can support people when harassment is occurring so that it's not just the negative voices happening. And to talk about the work that you do at SACPAW, you know, like every week you come together with like-minded individuals to learn about issues. Can you encourage young people in your life to do that in the context of digital literacy? My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for coming out to little old Lethbridge from Ottawa. Uh, my question relates to where do you see that you were mentioning uh, every, every talk you give, you have to cover a new app, so to speak. Uh, can you give us a little view of the future? We, we probably haven't seen anything yet when you consider all this, uh, these apps that's being used uh, I'm, I'm thinking things are happening fast and furious. Uh, where do you think it's going? Okay, I read a book, book Super Sad True, true, true story. story. It's a great book, and it's a dystopian fiction novel. And it was probably released three years ago, and already some of the things that it was talking about are starting to happen. Uh, one of them was being able to rate people at the bar based on how hot you think they are. I'd say we're not that far off with Tinder, one of the dating apps. Hot or not. Yeah, that's a thing. Um, so there might be some insight in Super Sad True Love Story. I also recommend inviting um, folks from the New Media Center at University of Lethbridge to come and speak here. They were one of the sponsors for us to come, and we had one of the profs there at yesterday's event. And he and I, he, he mentioned a few things, and then he and I were chatting at the end. And he was talking about how there's 
facial recognition software. So if I'm watching videos online, it can t almost identify who I am just by watching. Or the amount of green space in the video, it can tell that you're watching a sport. Like, like stuff that I can't even really, like I'm not a futurist, right? You need a futurist to come in and talk to you because there's some really bizarre things. But there's another question. Yeah, my name is Mark Gettle. Uh, recently, the RCMP has been suggesting or requesting the Solicitor General, I guess, that they have access to the Internet, per personal Internet accounts, without warrant. Do you think this is part of the solution and that people will start realizing that maybe it's not as private anymore as they think that it is now, if they know that you know someone like the police could be monitoring what they're doing? Uh, I have real concerns with undermining human rights at the expense of security requests. Uh, I think that as much as people are public in social media, you have self-determination about what you are sharing or not sharing. And there are real choices that people make. There are choices that we make that we don't realize we're making in terms of agreeing to certain terms and conditions to, to certain apps. And that is a problem of platforms not being accessible, providing plain language explanations of what is happening when you say, I agree. But that being said, I think it's really problematic for security services to have um, full access without a warrant. If, if an experience of sexual violence in an online context has happened. We have seen in past serious barriers put up by platforms and technology service providers to investigations, and that's really problematic. So I'm sure there's a middle ground that if an investigation is taking place and a survivor has come forward and made a report, that then the RCMP has, has, is able to request a warrant and proceed. But I think no warrant to me, that sounds like who who doesn't want a warrant when you search your house, and why would this be any different? That's my personal opinion. Well, on on behalf of uh, Council of Public Affairs and everybody here, thank you very much for making the journey. Thank you very much for the information. The internet is is to our society in the way that the combustion engine was a hundred and some years ago. That we got some very brilliant things out of the combustion engine. We got automobiles, we got airplanes, we got some communication technology, but we also got warplanes, we got tanks, we got submarines, and things of that nature. So any technology can be co-opted for anything. And this is very much about awareness, and hopefully we can take the message forward. Um, Country Kitchen wanted me to remind you, it is no coincidence that again the topic next week, exposing the developing brain to marijuana. They are serving brownies for dessert. <laughs> so next week is definitely one to be here. Thank you all very much for coming. Have yourself a great afternoon.